You're listening to The Lost Art of Liner Notes, a podcast by Rumbleyard. Recently, we caught up with Low Moon on the road and invited the band to sit down with us and discuss making their new self-titled debut album. I'm Matt Lowell, uh, originally from New York, singer-songwriter in Low Moon. I'm Sam Stewart. I'm originally from London. I play guitar and various other random things in Low Moon. Hi, I'm Chris Santa. I'm originally from Denver, play bass and keyboards in Low Moon. So that's uh, the introduction (laughs) (laughs) to this band. (laughs) I think it's important to kind of give like a little bit of backstory on how the thing came about and how we kind of started a record because I think it's a little bit unique in the the way that there were some songs written and the thing was kind of nebulous. Santa and I had met when I first moved to Los Angeles four years ago about and showed her Loveless, the first single, um, which was at the time, I think it was like a five minute song. And then um, we kind of started a band called Stranger. It was uh, Santa and I and um, a drummer friend of ours and we played loveless around town and um a few other songs um that that kind of faded out and then i spent a year in los angeles kind of bumming around writing a bunch of material and then santa and i would got into a room and started recording that material kind of on our own and kind of experimenting with some people and then um met sam and once we met sam same thing kind of showed him the music and then um, we got into a room and jammed on some kraut rock yeah. When I first met you guys, we go in a room and jam some instrumental weirdness for three hours and then got a text the next day. It was like, you want to be in the band? I was like, yeah. Yeah. If it's, if it's like that. <laughs> definitely. Little did we know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then basically uh, had a batch of songs and we started kicking them around in my little back house, which is kind of a studio slash rehearsal space slash low moon haven that's called The Shed. And uh, we just get in there and kind of, kind of do the same thing we did the first time we hung out, which was just jam on these two chord things forever. And then it, it felt like there was enough chemistry where we started introducing songs into the kind of fold. And then um, met Chris Walla and Frank Titez and kind of put them together as kind of a production duo, I guess. And um, it was ready to kind of make an album um, after we had... I would say we probably had like 85% of the songs when we first started the record. We thought we had 100, but as it goes, it's like some songs fall by the wayside and some songs don't aren't any good. And so then some you, songs pop up out of nowhere. Exactly. Yeah. So I think we started recording this album. I actually have no idea what timeline. It was November. Yeah, it was Definitely like, November. Cause it was actually, like we went up to Seattle like November twenty. 2015 was it yeah because right oh after God. i just remember yeah. after thanksgiving that's where, like i have a photo of us like yeah. all yeah, disheveled it had to be 15 because it's the end of the year so 2015 we basically started the journey on making an album chris walla has a rec- recording studio in seattle called the hall of justice which is where we tracked over half of the album so that's why we went up to seattle just to clarify 
And it was a unique process to start with because we also didn't really, we didn't really have a drummer <laughs> at the time. So Chris Waller, the producer, suggested that we meet Charlie Hall, who's the drummer in uh, The War on Drugs. And we went to see them play, who we're massive fans of. And Charlie kind of stepped into the role as the, um, I guess, resident Low Moon drummer for the first part of the record. Um, slash uncle. Yeah. Slash mentor. mentor. Yeah, slash everything. He kind of yeah. was the really, weirdly, the kind of glue that kept the thing together in the beginning because we were still trying to get to know each other musically in the studio. We had never made a record together. So it was like, that's a whole process. Not to mention the two producers hadn't ever worked together or really met before this project. I remember there was a weird moment during that first trip because we had started working with Chris. We did like three days with Chris and then Frank like showed up one day and he like came running. You know, Frank's kind of, if you imagine this Australian kind of wizard looking guy, long hair, disheveled, briefcases always like half, like, you know, he's always got like a, like a <laughs> bag that's always like about to fall off. He's kind of got a jacket that's about to fall off. And he's just got this energy about him. And um, he just kind of demands creative attention, I think. That's the kind of way I think about Frank. And he walked into the room and I'll never forget, actually, you know, I was playing something on the piano and he just came in and was like, started plugging in my guitar pedals into this little lamp. And I was doing the hook of Real Love and he like had, the, you know, he was just dialing in this thing. And we were kind of convinced at that moment that like we could make a record with these guys. So we just decided that we were just going to forge ahead and we weren't going to like look back. We were just going to keep going. And um, for better or worse, that was a process. And it was weird because it kind of worked both but they, like sometimes it was just Chris or sometimes it was just Frank or sometimes it was both. It was weird because we weren't told that this was how we were going to make the record. We just started making the record. <laughs> I know, like we didn't really like run anything by the record company or like we were just like, I think this is how we want to make this album. And then we went up and we started making the album because we had opened up, you know, maybe seven tracks or six tracks that we thought were good. And then we came home with like after the, <laughs> we had like five days in the studio. And then on the fourth day, we were like, oh no, we actually have to show somebody something. So we like started really working on one song and that song was Real Love. I remember getting home and real and thinking that it didn't sound that good. I thought it was okay. I thought it was like everything was really harsh. The synth sounds were like not right. I thought there were things about it that were like really good. And I think a lot of the things made the album and the like a few of the things made the album, but not everything. I feel like a lot of it we ended up re-recording. Yeah, we definitely re-recorded the drums like five times. And what was the first song that you felt was like complete and made the record? Loveless was the first song. Yeah. It, that Loveless was already like 60% there. Mm -hmm. So it was just about, I mean, there was some structural arrangement stuff, but then it was just like recording the bridge again and re-recording a couple sounds. And Matt re redid all the vocals, wrote another verse. But it sounded awesome straight away. Yeah. 
then like once we we all listened back to that the mix of that it was like okay now there's what do you call it there's a a bar yeah that like a bar a beacon set. like okay everything has to sound as good as or better than than this song yeah there yeah was still there was still there, moments God, of there complete was, and utter confusion there were so many moments after <laughs> the that dark i mean times. yeah Fox. Well, we Vox. went into this studio. <laughs> it was an amazing studio. Not yeah. not knocking Vox at all. Yeah. The Vox was amazing, but well, yeah, we went yeah. into the studio for we booked it out. Chris Walla came down to LA because we thought that I don't know, we wanted to record in LA because we wanted to be home and try it. And there was this great studio called Vox that like nothing in there is past the year of like 65 from the mic stands on. The mic stands are from like, you know, the Beatles era. Because that's the guy who owns the studio is just really into vintage gear, and so. Well, even the, the studio used to be where they would like cut TV audio and then send it back to Paramount Pictures. It was like across the street, so it has some of the same old wiring from that. Even yeah. it's ancient. So we decided to go in there because we all really liked it, and when, and you know I think we all liked the allure. There were records. There was like an LA scene happening at Vox at the time. I don't know. There's probably still is, but like at the time, it just felt like every LA band was like spending time in there. Mm -hmm. So we thought it was um, where we needed to spend time. And it's a fucking huge studio and just really weird and wonky. And there's a bunch of different rooms. And like we all just kind of set up in these rooms and we all collectively kind of lost our mind at the same time, including the producers. I mean, like. They were, couldn't keep track there of There was like, no direction there, or leadership. There was, it was literally like everyone was doing whatever they felt like doing for like three weeks. Mm -hmm. Felt like a fucking submarine. Yeah. Like seriously, we'd come out say. at night and it was like, what did we do today? Yeah. And everyone, I think actually the problem was that everyone actually did do something. Yeah. So it felt productive until we were getting towards the end where it was like, we have nothing to show for this. Yeah. Except for a bunch of stuff on like five different hard drives we need to get an assistant to put this stuff together to make sense of it. We did do that, but then like the assistant, no knock on the assistant, just put things in the wrong place and we pulled it up the last day and it was like, what is this? this things is the would be labeled too similar. Hundreds of tracks just yeah. like out of, in the wrong like yeah. space or whatever. I, I mean, mean, some good stuff happened at Box. That, some stuff that actually made the record. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Like the marimba part in Thorns. But no one can love you. No one can love you the same. I'll always want you. I'll always want you the way we learn to grow. The thorns on the road. Thorns on the road. Thorns on the road. Charlie recorded that at Vox mm -hmm. and that was an amazing moment and the resonator on thorns as well yeah and a lot of fairlight chrysanta got completely obsessed with the fairlight which is a archaic synth it's really early it's like the dawn of sampling the like peter gabriel kate bush synth but it's basically like a an early computer 
with floppy disk drives like the size of a record, <laughs> like an album, huge keyboard, computer screen, and then the heart, like the brain is just like huge and it feels like a space heater. It's boiling. <laughs> well, there was a it there, was just, there was like a a beautiful thing because Chrysanta, when we were making the record, would be on the little OP ones and. And Chris and I went out to, uh, this was in Seattle, and Chris and I went out to um, eat one day, just the two of us to talk about stuff. And then he was like, I want to get Chrysanta a Fairlight. And I was like, fuck yeah, that's a great idea. And I was like, <laughs> where the hell are you going to get that? And then he was like, I just emailed this guy in LA that has one. I was like, of course. Awesome. He so, had four, actually. Yeah, he had like four of them. He's like <laughs> the guy for yeah. Fairlights. You know, it's like crazy. So they're just kind of a behemoth of a thing, but they're on all of a lot of our reference records you know mm. so the drum sounds are like so big well no so so that was the idea behind it was to kind of blow up Crescenta's little world into something that was she would have to learn and uh dig into and that's what she did she kind of just went away for a week and like learned this synth and there was this great moment you know to paint the picture of Vox like I hear a yelling from the other room and I'm kind of in this world where I'm like trying to figure out where the hell we're at in this album completely fucking lost and then i hear like everyone yelling in the other room or santa and chris and i walk in and i'm like what's going on like we learned how to save i'm like (laughs) really i just i left i was like this is absolutely pointless yeah i think i cried but like like into that synth but like a lot i think there was a point where you took (laughs) me aside and you were like i think we're gonna have to like tell Cassandra that she can't like I think you were like Santa's the album. Yeah, Santa's gonna have to make a decision. Either she's gonna be a part of this album or or just spend more time on the Fairlight. Because <laughs> and in and in but, all in yeah. all honesty, the the yeah. biggest problem with it was actually not Chrysanta, yeah. and it was just Chris continually like because Chris was I think was in the Fairlight room like ninety if I remember correctly, he was like in the room ninety five percent of the time because he was trying to figure he wanted to know the Fairlight and I was kind of saying, well, let Crescenta figure the Fairlight out and let Chris produce the record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest problem because like then Sam and, and Charlie and I were kind of wandering around one, and, and um, Michael... Yeah, Michael, Michael Harris. Harris um, engineer. The engineer at, at Vox, like trying to figure out where the hell we were at. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we, so we had... I, I was trying to get like either the producer or the or the band or the band in the same room at one time was like proving to be incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, so I was just you know as I was just getting frustrated and and that was starting to feel the pressure of mm. wow we've been doing this for two months and we don't really have anything to show for it. I'm really glad we spent that time in Vox because I don't foresee that amount of uh, being lost in the woods happening in that same way. I know we'll be lost in the woods again. But it won't feel, it won't be, like, we can remember that and be like, oh, yeah, that's, we were lost because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Let's, mm-hmm. let's try to avoid that. That didn't work out for us. You know, learning experience. And what tracks is the fair light on? On Thorns, it's the drums for the first half? The whole, yeah, the whole song. The whole song? And then the real drums Until come in over top yeah. of it at the end. And then, what else? Real, real love. love. It's like some strings, sample stuff. I mean, they they could be on a lot it of it. It pops up all over the place. Yeah. There's, a, there's a great bell kind of alarm clock oh, yeah. ver, um, voice in this, in is, this it. is It in the bridge that's kind of really haunting and was a mistake.
basically, after Vox, we, we, we basically decided that this record was a total disgrace. And so we went into the studio. We went into the studio for like five days and we basically let Chris, like, I was like, Chris, here are the three hard drives that this record could maybe be on. Find so the record sure in these lost. three hard drives. And then we'll come back when it sounds like music. Because at that point, it was like, if we just, you know, you get to that point where you've recorded so much, you have no idea where anything is and you have no idea what you did. You're sure some of it was good. And so we needed three or four days for him to just sit there and start, and Frank, you know, to start placing it into music. Because that was the problem. We were so segmented and so kind of in our own worlds that, and, you know, a lot of beauty comes from that. I think a lot of great things comes from Crescenta sitting around by herself. And a lot of things that Sam does, you just have to let him do in his own room and figure out. But at the time, it was just like we had done so much of that. It was just like, it was just like we need someone to, sit, you know, call it, figure it out. And then we went back to Seattle, didn't we? Yeah. For the, the last hurrah. Well, it was supposed to be the last hurrah. We had gotten the like, we had gotten the like, okay, guys. We, you know, we, we said, okay, we're going to go back to Seattle and finish this album. A&R was like, A&R was like we got no more money. We got no more money. It's time to finish the album. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we took that back to Seattle and um, spent two and a half weeks there or something. And yeah, it wasn't a record yet. Yeah. It was kind of getting there. I guess it was close. There were some songs that sounded like a record, some songs that didn't. That was, but you're right. That was supposed to be the last time. Yeah, that was. But, this, but we then ended up, I'm not exaggerating, probably spending four more months on it. That was the first time we ran out of money. <laughs> then we did another like three months and then we actually ran out of money and we had to pull some favors. And as Lenny Band does, we did some of it at our house. We asked a friend, um, he had a studio right down the street from our place that he had rented for like a year and a half. And they, they had basically just gotten to a really, um, they had like taken two weeks off on their record. He was having like surgery or something. And then, so we asked to go into his studio. And he gave it to us for like for free, which was awesome. That was the first time. Well, it was there was bits and pieces of the record that was really fun, but that last week it was like camp. It was like was, summer camp. Was really fun because then everything start. All the the songs sounded like songs. There were only like flourishes and little sparkles and things that we wanted to add to them. And it was a studio down the street from Matt's house, and the AC was broken. It was awesome. It was the height of summer. So, I, but but like that sounds terrible. But it was actually fun because all the the doors and windows in the whole place were just open the whole time. Yeah, and the music was just like flowing out into the streets. Yeah, so, I'll never forget that. That was yeah. like a yeah. real, you know, the record started to feel like the record. Like anytime anybody had an idea, it was like, yeah, let's just do that. And then we did it, and it was great. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like re everything was really quick. There was like I was singing stuff, like finishing vocals and having a really good time, and like. And then, you know, we invited the A&R and the, and the manager over and the managers and they like sat down and they listened to the record and they were like, this is a record. You guys made it. And we had our drummer track there. Oh, yeah. And then halfway through the record, actually, we met Sterling, our drummer now, um, who weirdly was, was playing drums for Sam's sister. Yeah. And then we I don't actually him. remember how like <laughs> Mike and then, oh, yeah, the assistant engineer for Chris, his assistant, this guy, Mike Davis in Seattle, where Sterling is from and where Chris's studio was. He, oh, yeah, Sterling had said to me, he was like, tell Mikey Davis. I said, oh, that's hey. right. And I was like, hey, Mike, do you know Sterling Laws? And he was like, yeah. Why? I was like, oh, 
like I know him too. He's a, we we actually jammed with him, and he's like, oh, I've known Sterling since they, uh, they've known each other since they were like eight Seven or something. something. Yeah, it's crazy. It was just a total coincidence. And then Mike was like, are you guys thinking of jamming with? Are you thinking of having Sterling play for you? Because you should definitely have yeah. Sterling play for you. He's like, you should. Do- yeah. And at that time, we had tried so many different drummers, so I had no idea. These guys had to really help me because I was like, <laughs> whatever, guys. How many more drummers are we going to try? I was just really into trying drummers. But Sterling came in and it was really, really good. And then yeah. ended up, you know, uh, Charlie had gone back to the war on drugs for starting up again or like finishing, you know, actually, no, they were they were deep in their record. So he was kind of spending more time with them. And we had some songs that just needed, that needed drums. And Sterling not only stepped in and nailed it, but like we then, we definitely realized at that point he was going to be in the band. And for lack of, you know, he's in the band now and, and um, he's kind of the rock of the band. He's kind of helped the live show along every step of the way. So, yeah, you know, and then there was like, you know, bits and pieces to figure out and then getting it mixed. But um, yeah. we, we went to New York to mix with Michael Brower at Electric Lady. He's yeah, great. Amazing. And that was really fun. It was awesome. That was a really good time. And we were all in there and it was like uh, the, the A&R was there the producers were there. It was like a really fun experience, you know, like you're an electric lady mixing your first album. Um, and Michael had always been somebody I really wanted to work with just because I loved the way the early Coldplay, I loved the way Parachutes, like knowing that that went into his hands and it was like a total disaster and he kind of made it an album. You know, he worked with Aretha Franklin, like he was, he's a real drum. He Like he really gets r- drums and vocals. Those are the two things I think Michael's amazing. Vocals especially, is just a joke. He knows how to make vocals sound amazing. It was amazing going in at the end of the day and like just listening on his system and being like, hey, can you do little things here and there? But it was just like, this sounds like a record. And his assistant, Steve Vialli, is pretty insane. The way that works is you mix the song, then it goes into Steve's hands and Steve kind of does the like the next day while Michael's mixing the next song, the band and the producers will work with Steve to do like little tweaks you know, this needs to be louder or this yeah. needs less Volume compression rides. here or whatever. They have it so dialed in there. It's insane. And we did do that thing where we mixed it. And then Georgie, our A&R, I'll never forget this. We literally walked out. I had like a hard drive or like put it on my phone. We walked out, got into a car, went up to Columbia, played it for the CEO like right after. I mean, it was like there were still mixed tweaks going on. Mm-hmm. And we went up to Rob's office and like fucking plugged it in. And like we just sat there and listened to it on these massive speakers with our manager and like Rob and full like full volume, full volume. And Rob was, you know, he was like, "This is a record. This is awesome." And uh, he was the guy, you know, he was the guy that kind of nurtured this band, and he's a big part of the the fact that we're still going because he's just believed in us as a band. Like that's his thing. The crazy thing is that when you first like join a project, I give these guys a lot of credit because. And like, I'm feeling really lucky because actually, um, you know, when you're talking about things like, oh, it's going to take X amount of time or we're going to we're going to put it out and we're going to start touring tomorrow. You know, everything feels very like it's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. And, and you need people in the project that are just committed to the end goal, which is just having a career make in a band. So like these guys just joined the team and it was like, I really feel like it's a team because you need like everyone to be really into digging in and like it's not about like how long it takes or how much money you make or it's about like how we make music together and how we develop something that is meaningful to people you know that's like music is so 
it's so easy to get wrapped, especially in Los Angeles, it's so easy to get wrapped in like, oh, we're going to be in a band and like, we're going to be a famous band and you're signed to a major. And that's not what it's about at all. And like, you need to convince everyone in the team that it's actually about the process, what you learn along the way, how we develop as a band, how every single one of us actually wants to have a career in music instead of being in a band. Being in a band is kind of the vehicle for the career and making music together. So that I am really grateful because like everyone in the band and in the family is kind of into the same thing. All right, so the record's out. Now what do we do? We embark on our first headline tour. Daunting, excited, nervous, the whole thing. But we did like 85 support slots last year. So we learned a lot about what it means to support a band and also what it means to be a headliner because we watched some amazing bands mm-hmm. last year. We opened for Phoenix and the Lemon Twigs and the War on Drugs and London Grammar Glass and animals. Temples and Glass Animals. And we Ride. did some Ride. and Ride. And yeah. like we just did some amazing tours last year. And so we, yeah, we're excited to get out there and, and uh, headline and like learn even more about ourselves. Thanks, Thanks Thank you, Chris buddies. Santa. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Thank you, Santa. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. You can tell now It's a wonderful life Heaven's a fall When you're back by my side When you're back by my side It's a wonderful life Heaven's a fall When you're back by my Huge thanks to Low Moon for being our guests. You can visit lowmoonofficial.com to find out more about their new self-titled album, available now. This episode was produced by Lee Stimmel, Mark Grandy, Nicole Heeman, and me, Matthew Billy. Special thanks to Simon Marcus of Pippa and Columbia Records. The Lost Art of Liner Notes is a Rumble Yard production. Rumble Yard is a division of Sony Music Entertainment. For more information, please visit rumbleyard.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>